Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project, and I'm so excited um, to welcome a very special guest who's uh, been on here before he was on our Courageous Conversations, uh, Dr. Marvin McMichael. Welcome, Dr. McMichael. Good morning, Lisa. How are you today? I'm good. I'm excited to have you back. If uh, people have been connected to the G3 Project, they know uh, of a month ago I was posting and raving about your book. Ah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for um, the free I, ad. <laughs> Uh, I was introduced to you through uh, Dr. Uh, Howard John Wesley when I was in seminary and I was asking him, what books did I read? And he said, read all of Dr. Uh, McMichael's books. And oh, you'll my heavens. Uh, yeah, he's a so, good man and a good friend. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for those who don't um, know who you are, um, can you give them just a little bit of background about what you do? And um, Yeah, I'm, I'm currently now the president of Colgate Rochester Crozer Divinity School which is in Rochester, New York. And uh, it is the second oldest uh, divinity school in the country. It was organized in 1817. And um, many of the most illustrious African-American clergy in history uh, are graduates of our school, Howard Thurman, Mordecai Johnson, who was the first black president at Howard University. Uh, Martin King went to Crozer, which merged with us in 1970. Uh, Wyatt Walker, James Forbes, Bill Jones all got their doctoral degrees through us. So um, we are, you know, one of the leading producers of African-American religious leaders and scholars. And this is my sixth year as president of the school. Before that, I was a pastor for 34 years. My ministry began at Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York City. Samuel Proctor was the pastor, who, by the way, is also an alumnus of Colgate Rochester Crozer Divinity School. So in a sense, my life has gone from working with Colgate uh, alums to being the president of their school, which <laughs> for me is quite a fascinating journey. Yeah, quite a fascinating journey. That's amazing. And I, um, I was reading the story of you talking about um, Dr. Proctor in your book, Preaching to the Black Middle class and yes. uh, I was personally touched because you you make the distinction between understanding somebody being brother and the class difference that kind of hinders yeah. um, sometimes communication which is was really yeah. good um, yeah we were having a conversation we were walking from the church to Harlem Hospital to make a hospital call and we passed some men standing on the corner of 138th and Lenox and I just, you know, sort of casually in 1973 style said, how are you brothers doing? <laughs> and uh, Dr. Parker said, you know, uh, I know what you mean by that, but they are no more your brothers than, you know, anybody else. He didn't mean in terms of sort of racial brotherhood. He meant in terms of cultural understanding, uh, worldview, the values that, that guide us in our decision-making, uh, these were men, in his mind, uh, who had not really been touched and formed by the experience of the church or by higher education or uh, by any particular reading list. And so even though we shared the same complexion and maybe the same racial ancestry, his point was we probably don't share the same worldview uh, in terms of how to maneuver through life. He meant no disrespect. He was just trying to make a point um, that was impressive to me. Um, I still call him brother on future dates, but I understood his point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was important enough for me to record in that book. Mm -hmm. It was impactful for me because I, I'm in different circles. And so um, I sometimes speak in conservative evangelical circles. And when I tell them I'm doing apologetics in the African-American context, their first point of reference is, oh, you're doing inner city ministry. And mm -hmm. it's 
it's it's funny because I mean our president kind of has some of that same uh, those same yeah. Uh, yeah. thoughts, but it seems that black is only synonymous with one um, class type, and right. I really appreciate it preaching to the black yeah. middle class because you highlight the different classes in African American um, yeah. community. Yeah, I spent all my ministry in uh, congregations, Montclair, New Jersey. Um, of course, Abyssinian, which while it was in Harlem, was really a very culturally diverse community with physicians and educators and bankers and lawyers and janitors and and custodians and uh, and and uh, laborers, but they were all there together. And so one group enriched the experience and enriched the worship and enriched the understanding of God of the other group because they were all coming to church, but in a sense, needing God to serve them in the areas where they labored. Mm -hmm. And they weren't always the same. Mm -hmm. And so from Abyssinian to New Jersey to Cleveland, uh, I was always exposed and was also in Chicago, raised in a multicultural, uh, multi-level social arrangement church. So all I've ever known are black churches that had at least three levels, you know, sort of an upper middle class, very successful, highly trained, uh, a solid middle class, and then, you know, a substantial number of persons who were really laboring to get through life. And mm -hmm. uh, it's all I've ever known. And I think you're right. Our current president uh, thinks that all black people are living in hell. And mm -hmm. that if you walk down any street in the black neighborhood, you're going to get shot. And of course, Chicago becomes the metaphor for all of us. Well, I resent that because my home is Chicago. I was born and raised in Chicago. I managed not to get shot. I wasn't living in hell. He has probably never been to my neighborhood, would never go to my neighborhood to find out how wrong he is. But it's in his mind, and what can you do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, that's so important that we highlight that to dispel yeah. that false narrative. So we're going to get to the book. Uh, right. I'm short again because I want everybody to get it. And Thank it's you. Book yeah. it African American Christian Heritage. And this book yeah. has really been a blessing to me. Um, most of the people that you wrote about, I never heard of. What inspired you um, to write uh, this book? My whole life. Um, I've been teaching Black religious history for about 30 years. And what you just said is what inspired me. The number of people in the classes, the number of people in the churches, the number of clergy who had no idea about um, the contributions of African-American clergy, the wide diversity of styles, denominations, uh, political worldviews that had been a part of this journey for the last 200 years. So I decided that I was going to sit down and do research in four, and then it became five categories. The first category was church leaders, founders of denominations or major movers, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, independent. Then preachers, those persons whose preaching was so outstanding that the whole world had to take note. Then scholars, uh, persons whose scholarship, writing, research was an enrichment for the understanding of the Black experience. And then political leaders, because unbeknownst to many people, there have always been African Americans involved in the political process, holding elective office, especially at the national level. And then I came along and said, okay, I'm going to add what I call nationalists by which I met persons who weren't necessarily Christian, but they had like Marcus Garvey or Malcolm X or Elijah Muhammad uh, or noble Drew Ali. They had sort of parallel religious groups that tried to offer an approach that was different from mainstream Christianity. And then finally I said, okay, well, there's one more group, which is singers and musicians. So those became the categories for my research. Then I simply said, okay, who do folks need to know about in these six categories? 
the publisher and I uh, began with the list. We then sent a list out to about 50 other notable black leaders and said, who do you want to add to this list? We got a few more names. And then by consensus, we went forward with the research. It took about four years wow. to, to write that book because the research on each of those uh, characters really had to be done carefully. And a, a lot of it was sort of original research in terms of reading their biographies, reading some of their papers, uh, going to as many uh, original sources as we could find, then finding a photograph, getting permission to use the photographs where photograph wasn't available to try to fashion as best we could some image of what they might have looked like. Um, and then, you know, to send it out to be read by other people to make sure that we were telling the truth. And then we got the feedback from, from our editors and went to press. And um, it was a monumental task, but uh, I'm so pleased with the results. Mm -hmm. It was definitely worth it. Uh, yeah. So thank you for, for taking on that task. No, um, thank you. Uh, there's this false narrative going around that's uh, been perpetuated by people like uh, Dr. Umar Johnson, uh, people like Brother Polite, or uh, people that are in these kind of black cults uh, that Christianity is it hasn't really done much, or the black church hasn't really done much for the community. It's more of a, a pacifying um, thing for black people. Um, how would you deal with that uh, that kind of uh, information that's going around? Well, of course, it's it's. Um it's wholly, totally, and completely false. Um, anybody who says that has not studied African-American religious history to find out ways in which the economic development through the cultivation of one generation of leaders after another, through involvement in social protest efforts, uh, through housing corporations, financial institutions like credit unions and small banks, uh, the things that the black church has done since its founding uh, have been dramatic and transformative. Now, has every single congregation been as aggressive and as engaged as every other single congregation? No. But the same could be said for any institution where one chapter, one agency, one branch is a bit more visible, a bit more engaged than the others. But since I've never heard of the men that you just mentioned, uh, I would say that their perspective uh, as two individuals trying to critique the worth and value of 250 years of African-American religious history, I suspect without much of a reading list uh, to suggest where they think change and progress has been made is rather suspect. Give them the book, ask them to read it if they dare, and then write a review to see if their critique actually holds up. Or better yet, have them call me and tell me <laughs> what they're saying and ask them to stay on the line long enough for an answer. And I suspect they will do neither of the above. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so what are the economic contributions um, of, the, of the black church? Um, if you could- The last church that I pastored, <clears throat> which was Antioch Baptist Church in Cleveland. This is just one church. Uh, in 1945, when African-American soldiers came back from World War II, and they could not get conventional mortgages from any bank in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, these are decorated Army, Navy, and Marine veterans. Before there was a VA loan or the GI Bill, Black soldiers could not get loans to buy homes. So Antioch, one of many churches, organized a credit union, state credit union, and then they became a, a national credit union. And through credit unions, African Americans were able to put money in and then borrow five times the amount of their holdings in order to get either a first or a second mortgage for a, for a home, for automobiles, for 
tuition for their children to go to college. So by the time I left, we had a two and a half million dollar credit union wow. that, with members, you know, all over the city of Cleveland who were buying their houses through us. Uh, the church also had a tithing program, but our tithing program was not 10% in. Our tithing program was 10% of our annual budget tithed out wow. to social agencies in the neighborhood that were doing good work in drug addiction and domestic abuse, of course, civil rights organizations, money sent to black colleges uh, to help them in their scholarship efforts. Uh, you were talking earlier about William Holmes Borders and the massive housing corporations that he has developed all over the country. Uh, Antioch had a housing development, 18-story high-rise senior citizen housing all over the country. Black churches were sponsoring credit unions, economic development programs, housing programs. In Detroit, uh, Charles Adams was buying a whole mall with a grocery store, a Kmart, all kinds of other auxiliary shops. I could talk all day long about the ways in which churches through housing, economic development, credit unions, uh, have not just taken money from the neighborhood, but poured major capital into the neighborhood to make them better. And I would defy anybody to refute the fact that the largest generator of economic progress in most black communities has been, if not a church, then certainly churches moving in their own orbits, uh, not to mention the property value of the buildings themselves and all the programs, not church programs, all of the community programs that go on inside the church. So take the black church out, take out its physical space, take out the money it invests in housing, take out its credit unions, take away its housing projects, take away its, its investment in small businesses, and ask your two friends uh, who are going around talking where that economic progress would come from if those churches weren't there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very important thing that we need to understand because, yep. you know, when people sometimes, the media kind of perpetuates this narrative that the black church steals money and doesn't invest it. And, you know, pastors are driving uh, Cadillacs and, and Mercedes and stealing the money. Yeah. And that's yeah. so far from the truth because most churches that aren't mega churches oh. uh, and, and a lot of pa most pastors are bivocational. So they're working a full time job and preaching. So yeah. it's, it's important that we uh, have these conversations like this to kind of dispel this false narrative. Um, yeah. When we talk about uh, contributions of the black church and talk about um, resistance in the black church, the, the black church was really kind of founded on resistance against whiteness um, with uh, Richard Allen. Um, and I thought it was really cool how you highlighted the fact that um, he purchased his freedom, him and his wife's freedom. And then he was, they attempted to put him back in slavery and he mm -hmm. sued his catcher and won. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, there was um, two, well, two practices. The first practice was called gradual manumission, gradual manumission, which means that after a slave has worked all day for the benefit of the owner, uh, with the owner's consent, he or she could work a little longer, set money aside uh, that can be used to buy their freedom. So that's what Richard Allen did. He bought his own freedom and then the freedom of his wife and his children. While he was a free man living in Philadelphia, slave catchers who often came to Philadelphia because they knew it was a haven for runaway slaves uh, saw him. They could not find the person they were looking for, but very often a slave catcher would just snatch any black person, uh, like the story in 12 Years a Slave, uh, Solomon Northrop, where he was just snatched off the street and forced back into slavery. And so this particular slave catcher made the claim that Richard Allen was a runaway slave. Now, by law, that claim required 
the local sheriff to hold that person in custody until the time of transport. So Richard Allen was about to be sent somewhere in the South, but a white person in Philadelphia came forward and identified Richard Allen as who he was as not a runaway slave. And then once Richard Allen was released from jail, he then sued the man who falsely charged him as being a runaway slave and won in court for the false charge of trying to arrest and send to slavery a free man. And uh, he had his purchase papers. Um, and so, yeah, he it, it may have been the first time either him or maybe um, Sojourner Truth that a black person sued in court and won uh, for the sake of the salvation of themselves or in the case of Sojourner Truth for the freedom of her children. Mm -hmm. But this was in the 1780s. Mm -hmm. And that's amazing. And, and uh, one of the things that I, I love that you highlighted in addition to that about Richard Allen, that in, in addition to him um, standing up for his rights, in addition to him um, cre uh, starting the first, <coughs> being the founding member of the African-American church in the African Methodist Episcopal, uh, starting the denomination, mm. he also was an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. And he owned three businesses, uh, a shoemaking business. Now, we don't know much today about a chimney cleaning, cleaning business, but remember that in the 18th century, everybody burned firewood and that uh, chimneys were the essential heating component of a house and soot could build up inside those chimneys. And if it wasn't cleaned out, it could cause a fire in the house. So one of the most important tasks was the cleaning of chimneys. He owned the business. Now he wasn't had a chimney sweep himself. He was employing people to do that. And he was also a barber. So he had barber shops, chimney sweep shops, uh, shoemaking shops, and don't forget, he and Absalom Jones were also the founders of the Free African Society, which was a mutual aid society, like an insurance company. You pay money in, and then if somebody dies, you can go there to get money for the funeral expenses or any other emergency that may arrive. So they organized the Free African Society in 1786. Wow. For there was the church, there was this black financial institution. Now here's an interesting thing. You had to have a white person to be the treasurer because no bank in Philadelphia would do business with black people, even if they had the money. So written into the charter of the Free African Society was the policy that the treasurer had to be a Quaker now, that's because Quakers, first of all, were anti-slavery, and secondly, they were reputed to be great business people. So a white person had to do all the banking for the Free African Society because no bank would do business with Richard Allen. But there he was, organizing essentially an insurance company in 1786. Wow, that's amazing. Um, you shared uh, how African um, leaders and, and church leaders were involved in um, politics. Uh, can you give some highlights? We know uh, a current uh, one would be Dr. Floyd uh, Flake, um, but before Dr. Flake, there was many others. Uh, can you? Yeah, the first the first uh, African American clergy in politics was a another AME. His name was Hiram, H-I-R-A-M, Revels, R-E-V-E-L-S. Now, believe it or not, Hiram Revels was the United States Senator from the state of, praise yourself, Mississippi. Wow. Imagine a black United States Senator from Mississippi. Here's an even funnier thing. He was, he was now, the, in those days, you didn't run for the Senate. You were appointed by the state legislature. So he was appointed by the state legislature to the United States Senate after Mississippi was allowed back into the Union. This is after the Civil War. The last person to hold that seat for Mississippi 
was Jefferson Davis, wow. who was the president of the Confederacy. So the seat in the Senate in Mississippi went from white slave-holding secessionist to a black African Methodist Episcopal preacher in a four-year wow. period of time. Hiram Revels was the first one. Then you had a score of uh, persons serving in Congress, the first of those um, from South Carolina, and then you had several from Louisiana. The governor of Louisiana for a very short period of time was a black clergy person. And then, of course, with the loss of the right to vote, beginning in 1877 and the suppression of the black vote, all these black office holders went away, not to return really until the 1930s and 40s. So the next one up was Adam Clayton Powell, who went to Congress in 1944. And then of course, in, in succession, just in Congress, uh, you had Andrew Young, and you had Walter Fauntroy, and you had Floyd Flake, and you had Bill Gray, uh, and all of them served in major uh, congressional positions. And now you have uh, Emmanuel Cleaver in Kansas City, Missouri, who was a pastor for a long time and then mayor of Kansas City. And now he is uh, a clergyman serving in the U.S. Congress. At the level of state governments and city governments, oh, I can't even name them. I myself spent uh, two terms as the president of a school board in uh, in Montclair, New Jersey. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think clergy people, there were between 1865 and 1876, there were 2,000 African-Americans serving in Congress, uh, serving in politics. Of that number, 200 were known to have been black clergy. So I did a book called Pulpit and Politics uh, with Judson Press a couple of years ago. All these names, all of this is just laid out for anybody to read. Uh, it is a revelation to most people that that many clergy were involved in that many political uh, offices over that long a period of time. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, now, the role of the black church in voter registration, voter education. Uh, many black churches are polling places for you know electoral politics. So the church here again, if you took it out, if you took out not only its leadership, but all that happens inside its walls for political uh, activity, where else? So here's an interesting thing. Charles Hamilton uh, wrote a book called The Black Preacher in America. This is the same guy who uh, wrote a book about, about black power in the 1960s with Stokely Carmichael. He said, um, <clears throat> the black church's advantage is the following. One, it doesn't have to ask its people to show up. Mm. You know, no invitation is required. Every Sunday, masses of folks just show up. Secondly, it doesn't have to ask permission to use space. It has its own owned space. Third, it doesn't need to rent office equipment because it's got everything it needs to function. Fourth, it doesn't need permission from downtown to do whatever it wants to do. No other professional group, not doctors, not lawyers, not accountants, no other group can claim those four things. An assembly that automatically shows up, space that it owns, fully equipped to function, not only for religious, but for community purposes, without the consent of any external party, no need to rent anything because you own all that you need and folk will take your leadership when you offer it. Who else, who else can say that? No, what no. other group can say that mm -hmm. week after week, after week, after month, after month, after year, after year, take that out. Tell your two friends, take that out and ask them what would happen in the black community if that wasn't happening on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. Um, an, another uh, myth I think that's out there is this whole idea that the the black church hasn't been theological 
technologically robust um, as far as, you know, maybe teaching, it's been more emotional um, and not an intellectual uh, space. What would you say to that? Uh, I would say that there is a strand where that is true, just as there is a strand where that is true uh, in um, white evangelical circles, uh, in Pentecostal circles. Not everybody has believed that uh, education is a part of the religious experience. So I don't refute that that is true in some settings. What I will say is, in an, this is like Donald Trump again, in an attempt to paint the whole black church with what may be true in some sectors is to oversimplify. So um, most of the churches that I've dealt with over my 34 years as a pastor would not have fit that profile. All the pastors, were seminary trained. All the pastors uh, used wonderful research and clear logical structure in their preaching. All of them had informed worldviews, but we all knew that there were some places you would go where there just wasn't going to be the case. It just doesn't happen to be the norm. But of course, if you're looking to make a point and the point you want to make is negative, then you go find the example that you want that seems to reflect the conviction that you've got and stretch it out and say, now see, that's how they are. That's, that's what they do. That's how they carry on. All right. I would say the same thing, however, about any religion where there are streams and strands uh, of uh, perhaps less than thoroughly informed strands where folks, you know, have bought into narrow understandings, narrow uh, perceptions of what their religion is all about, but it doesn't speak to the norm. It's like saying ISIS represents all of Islam, mm -hmm. or it's like saying the most conservative Hasidic Jewish strands represent all of Judaism. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't respect, it doesn't reflect reform Judaism. It doesn't reflect reconstructionist Judaism. It doesn't reflect even conservative Judaism. So yeah, you can say that there are places within the black church where there is a certain emotionalism and a certain educational conservatism. That's true everywhere. That's true in America. And there are people who are, who refuse to read a book. You know, I mean, they're just, they're just ignorant by choice. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that Americans are ignorant. It just means that person is. Mm -hmm. But you can't stretch that out and say, that's the norm. Mm -hmm. That's a great I'm more the norm than the folk you're talking about. Mm -hmm. See, folks who've gone to school, gotten ready, functioned efficiently. Yeah, don't look at them. Look at me. You know, you, mm -hmm. use me as the measure as the measuring rod and then see what happens. Mm -hmm. I think the unfortunate thing is sometimes the people such as yourself don't get as much exposure and the uh, and the other ones are very loud and they put yeah. themselves out there to try to get uh to, to try to be seen and so yeah. people uh kind of just go with what they see instead of yeah. like you said picking up a book and reading and doing thorough <laughs> research. Um, uh, the uh the recent election was a clear case in point uh this poor brother down in south carolina who got involved with Donald Trump, got to speak at the national convention, and uh, then they did a little background on him. His first name was Mark something or other. And about all that he claimed in terms of his background proved to be untrue. Mm -hmm. He claimed degrees he didn't have. He claimed affiliations he didn't have. All he had was a loud manner. And because it was in favor of Donald Trump, Donald Trump lifted him up. But once it was revealed that he was not really all that he said he was, suddenly he just vanished from you. But you're right, the media does pick out the ones it wants to celebrate, and it can pretty effectively ignore the ones that it wants to. So we had to make our own news. Mm -hmm. With you, for instance, you know, just if you didn't do this, most folks would never know about that book. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate it. I appreciate you as yeah. well. Um, 
uh, there's this thing I've, I've read it at, uh, online a couple times about the black church being dead. Um, uh, being dead, yeah. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, let's at least um, remind your listeners of what Eddie Gloud meant. Um, Eddie Gloud Jr., who's a professor of religion at Princeton, wrote uh, an essay on the Huffington Post in which he said the black church is dead. He didn't mean that it was going to cease to exist. He meant that the role it had played as sort of the central institution in the life of black communities all across the country was probably coming to an end. That's less to do with the church itself and more to do with what I would refer to as the broadening secularization of American society. More and more people, for whatever the reason, are finding ways to shape their life without reference to church or synagogue or mosque. Um, a Pew Research study was done over the course of 10 years to measure the degree of religious affiliation of all Americans. And what they discovered was that every year for a decade, American religious affiliation declined 1% a year. Not increased, declined 1% a year. So that what you had were fewer and fewer people going to church, fewer and fewer people using religious values to sort out their worldview. If that's the case, then fewer and fewer people will see the church as the central institution that it has always been. Now, it's still there. It's still functioning quite well. But the church by itself can't turn around this, this secularization. It's already happened in Europe. Churches in Europe, by and large, are empty. They're being sold for art galleries and museums and being rehabbed in their apartment buildings. Um, it may well be that it's happening in this country as well. And uh, it's already happened in white communities where Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians have already seen massive declines in their national membership. And as African-Americans prosper, and become, you know, more um, enabled to enjoy all of America, they may see that Sunday morning for them is not about the church. It's about the golf course. It's about brunch. It's about uh, some other secular venture. It's about soccer. It's about, you know, whatever it is that they want to do. So I think Eddie Gloud's point is not just that the church is dying, but that its role in the black community is diminishing. Now, to be fair to him, uh, I think he also believes that a certain number of black clergy have abandoned the role of protest leader, have abandoned the role of political agitator, and have embraced the prosperity approach. And that as you go from protest community where you're trying to advocate for the lifting up of the whole community and you're moving to this prosperity thing where the whole ball game is about being wealthy and healthy and if that doesn't happen it's because your faith is not strong enough well that's just foolish but if you have more and more churches going that way then you do begin to lose uh, a lot of the power, a lot of the energy that the church had in the 50s and 60s. Though even then, most churches were not that engaged. Uh, we, we sometimes over-imagine that all of the pastors and all of the churches were in the street. No, they never were. But they weren't working other ways. They just weren't working, you know, sort of actively in protest marches. But it's even fewer today than it was then. So I think his point is the role that it played um, in the, in the anti-slavery crusade, or that it played in the right to get the right to vote, 
or in the civil rights movement, maybe not as many pastors are doing that as might have been the case before. My response is that may be true. There's a good core left that really is still doing the work. And so we're not dead. We're just, you know, we're just not at full strength. Mm -hmm. And I think you made a great point when you're talking about uh, as African-Americans progress, them maybe wanting to do other things on Sunday mornings. Because yeah. uh, uh, I was reading through uh, J.D. Otis Roberts when in his book, um, Liberation and Reconciliation, talking mm -hmm. about atheism when when blacks turn to to being atheistic is usually because of uh social a social uh yeah, crime. yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's 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 almost um following a cultural trend um now see i wouldn't i would not i don't want to contradict jd otis roberts i just would not myself use the term atheistic because that's a view of religion that says there is no god um I think that what's happening is folks don't doubt that there is a God. They just don't believe they have to build their world around it. Mm. Um, you know, they may, they may seek God out in their own ways. They may worship God in their own time and place. Um, I don't think that most folks I know who've gone this way are atheists. They're just disinterested. Is there a God? Yeah. There was a, a study done by uh, George Barna Research Center. And uh, this was about 10 years ago. And George Barna's asked them three or four questions. This was a telephone poll. The first question was, do you believe there is a God, a supreme being, uh, a creator? 94% of all who answered said yes. The next question was, if you believe that, how often do you go to worship the God that you say you believe in? And the average was 45% said they go on a regular basis, regular meaning once a month. So 94% believed in God, 45% went to worship once a month. The third question was, do you build your decision-making and your relationships with other people around the teachings of the church in which you go because you believe in God? And the answer there was 4%. So 4% of the 45 who go, 45 of the 94% who say there is a God, let that relationship inform them every day. So I don't think this is about atheism. This is about um, relaxed, comfortable living. And I call on God when I need God. Other than that, I'm going to play golf. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is going on. Yeah. What do you think is the difference between the middle class that you wrote about and when you were talking about preaching to the black middle class in, in the fifties and sixties and the middle class of today, because they still, it, it seems when you were talk, talking about uh, the middle class in that book, they still had a strong sense of God being the focus, um, even though they were climbing uh, yeah. the ladder economically. Yeah. No, I don't think there's ever going to be a time when the black middle class will leave the church in mass. Uh, Every church I go to, I was in a in an African Methodist Episcopal middle class church yesterday here in Rochester. Uh, it was filled. Um, wherever I go, in Rochester, anywhere else, the middle class is packing in on these churches. So long as the sermon is relevant, excuse me, I gotta turn this off. So long as the sermon is relevant, so long as the music is edifying. So long as there's something for their children to do, you know, to sort of spiritually enrich them, they're going to go to church. Now, all of them, no, but enough of them to keep these institutions going, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, it would be mistaken for me to believe that um, the middle class has bailed out on the church. Now, 
upper middle class, the very wealthy, you know, the Oprah level people, uh, mm -hmm. the LeBron James <laughs> level people, you know, the, mm -hmm. the Hollywood level people. I, I can't say it because I don't know them. You know, I don't <laughs> uh, at that level. So um, I hope that they have some spiritual values, but they don't go to my church. So I couldn't, you know, uh, but now I did preach once at a church in Los Angeles back in the mid eighties. Do you know it was packed with Hollywood movie stars? Wow. The first AME church of Los Angeles had as its regular worshipers, Denzel Washington, um, Angela Bassett, you know, folks like that. So they go to church too, but they go with each other. You know, in other words, one of them goes and then they bring three more and then they bring five more. Football players go to church. They just don't go to church during football season, you know, because they're playing on Sunday. But I was in Cleveland, Ohio. I had tons of Browns players uh, come to our church. Of course, one of our ministers was a former member of the Cleveland Browns. So having him there was a magnet for the rest of them. But no, I don't think we're ever going to leave the church in mass. You know why? Because unlike, and this is the book you're referring to, the black middle class, unlike white people in the middle class who can escape uh, with money um, in a sort of oppression or racism, I don't care how rich you are in America as a black person you're still a black person in America. And race is gonna trump economics every time. Uh, white Americans are not gonna say, okay, you are now rich enough, powerful enough, popular enough for us to overlook the fact that you're black. That's the Barack Obama experience. This is the president of the United States was called a liar out loud during a joint session of Congress by a congressman from South Carolina. And nobody in Congress, including Nancy Pelosi, did anything about it. Can you imagine if a black person cried out against Ronald Reagan that he was a liar mm -hmm. in Congress, mm -hmm. what the response would have been? So um, it doesn't matter in this country, at least not now, how high up you go. You have never gone so high that being black ceases to be a factor. That's why black folks keep coming to church because they come to church to get healed up, to get nurtured, to get strengthened, to go back out and face again a Harvard BA, a University of Pennsylvania MBA, uh, a PhD from Oxford, and they go off down some city street and somebody who doesn't know them sees them only as the N-word. And all the rest, you know, it doesn't matter um, because the country is still conditioned more so now under Trump, uh, it's still preconditioned to lump all black people together, mm -hmm. like Chicago, you know, you're, you're living in hell. Um, so no, I think black folks are gonna go to church as long as racism persists. Mm -hmm. And I don't see racism in America coming to an end anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's almost to our advantage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's funny you say that because there's a, a push uh, for, in evangelical context, is a multi-ethnic ministry to see if, if blacks and whites are worshiping together, it will kind of help eliminate uh, racism and prejudice if we start in the church. Um, but then I find that my friends that are African-Americans that sometimes go to these multi-ethnic churches talk about the racism within the churches, even oh, yeah. though they're welcoming um 
then there's still the prejudice and tension and not wanting necessarily blacks in leadership or not wanting to submit to um, African-American leadership, uh, even if it's a quote unquote multi-ethnic church. They like the appearance uh, with people being present, but there's no real uh, intentionality mm-hmm. um, in what it looks like to fight systems that uh, create these structures. Yeah. Now, now, so now, keep this in mind. That's exactly what drove Richard Allen out of the St. George Methodist Church in 1787. That you could be present in the building if you stayed in your section, but you could not be in leadership. We would not shift the worship style to suit you. All you could do was just be here. Mm. 240 years later, we still have white churches saying to black people, you're perfectly welcome to come and sit. You can't be the pastor. We don't want to sing your kind of music. We're not going to make any political statements that advocate for your position in society. Um, but you're free to be here. So I, I asked myself what it is that the white church is willing to do to make itself not available, but to make itself useful to its black members who have a very different world experience than the majority of the white members who go to that church. And I say to a black person, if you're going to a church that does not reflect your culture, that does not speak to your political, social, and economic issues, that does not value and uplift your children, that does not treasure your history, and does not invite you into leadership roles, why are you there? Mm. What is the value to you of being in a place where all you can do is just be there? But so any church, that says to you, no educational material will be multicultural. Uh, The leadership team will not be multicultural. The music will not be multicultural. The board of trustees and deacons will not be multicultural. We'll have all the power, but you're free to pay in. We just won't use this money to benefit anything you really care about. You're free to go. I just asked the question, why are you there, given all the options uh, to worship and be nurtured and make an impact in some other institution? You know, it's a free country. Folks can go where they want to. But I've always pondered that question. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I've gone to many a white church and, um, you know, I long to go home. (laughs) <laughs> I, I long for for shout. I long for that 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 stretch note on a Hammond organ. I, I I long for somebody to read the Bible through the eyes of oppression. I just couldn't I just couldn't stay in a place that didn't understand where I'd been. Not not just the week where I'd been for the last sixty eight years, mm. and and then weave that into its narrative. If, if they're not going to do that, I'm going to find someplace that will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Um, I loved in your book how you, you highlighted the Black women that have been um, major forces in the yeah. Black church. Um, could you highlight some of the ones that you shared in your book? Well, um, of course, the first one is Jarena Lee. Jarena mm-hmm. uh, Lee was the woman in the African Methodist Episcopal Church uh, back in the 18th and very early 19th century who approached Richard Allen on the question of ordination uh, to the preaching ministry. So um, she was the first, to our knowledge, first black woman to um, declare a call to ministry and to seek uh, approval and authorization to do it. Richard Allen's response was that the AME polity 
and, and, and structure had made no provision for female clergy. And she asked him twice, if the Lord can save men and women, can't the Lord use men and women? Uh, he was reluctant to have her ordained, but he did let her preach in his own church. So she was the first woman to ever preach in an AME church. After her, uh, the number of women who were involved in the life of the church continued to grow both in pastoral ministry and in external ministries as preachers and as evangelists. <clears throat> Until finally, of course, in 2000, Vashti McKenzie becomes the first bishop of the AME church. But if it had not been a Jerina Lee advocating for ordination right from the beginning, it isn't likely that the AME church would ever have given in to the idea of a female bishop, not just a pastor, but a bishop. They now have four female bishops. All the Methodist churches do. All the Baptist churches uh, have now agreed to the ordination of women. Uh, some were a little slower than others, but that's true um, across the country. Uh, the Southern Baptist Church, largely white, very slow on the issue of women in ministry. But women have been playing a leadership role in the life of the church one way or the other. Now, take Nanny Helen Burroughs, who was never a clergy person, but she was the organizer of the women's division of the National Baptist Convention, and for 60 years was second only to the president of the convention, the most powerful person in the National Baptist Convention because she controlled the women. Anybody who controls the women in a black church has power because if the women leave, you know, about at least 70% of the church is gone. Mm -hmm. So uh, she was a major, a major force uh, in the life of the church. And there have been many, many others as well. It would be false to say that women have been mute in the church. They've been very much central to the mission of the church. And now, of course, their leadership is sort of, you know, broadly accepted, if not universally. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I want to ask you one other question before we, we leave. And this actually is, this is not related to this book, but it goes back to <coughs> preaching to the black middle class. And yeah. I, I was, this is kind of off topic, but I selfishly wanted to ask you this because I've been wondering about it because <laughs> I have this highlighted in the book. But when you were talking about um, how segregation had, uh, uh, how integration had unintended consequences, because yeah black middle class and upper class moved out of communities into the suburbs and yes. um it caused black children maybe that still are inner in inner city not to see uh black doctors and lawyers yep. and yep. business people um do you think that uh that's one of the major problems in our inner city context uh today uh, because i hear my my grandmother talking about uh some sometimes she'll talk about how she wishes there was still uh that she she wishes in a sense that we still had segregation what you talking about mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> i have it up here on my shelf yeah but, uh, <laughs> get that book as well uh but yeah. she talks about how sometimes she kind of doesn't like the idea of integration because of what it did to our communities and how yeah. she felt like we were thriving more uh with segregation what are your thoughts on that well, you know, you're, you're, she's not altogether wrong. There were pros and cons. Uh, segregation denied us the option of moving wherever our money and our preferences uh, could take us. What it did do was it forced us to create our own businesses, our own um, dental practices, our own medical practices, and our own school systems. My wife is from Georgia. Her school system was segregated until 1978. 24 years after Brown, they were still segregated. When they finally ended that, they said, okay, we have two high schools. 
one black, one white. Which person do you think became the principal of the one high school, the white principal? We have two football teams, one black, one white. Who do you think became the coach of the unified football team, the white coach? We have two schools, two, two cores of bus drivers. Who do we keep? What happened was that a large number of black people had jobs, leadership positions, and influence because they were forced into these separate societies. You could live right next door to the principal, across the street from the banker, around the corner from uh, a physician. When integration came and persons were free to move, not only to move their household, but to move their children to any school they wanted, the, the result was that a lot of black institutions suffered. Name for me five, not you, but anybody, five NFL players today who graduated from historically black colleges. They'd be hard pressed to do it today, playing right now. 25, 35 years ago, almost all of the black players came from HBCU schools because it was the only place they could go. So Howard, Jackson State, Grambling, Southern, Prairie View, Tougaloo, Texas Southern, all of these schools that produced, you know, teachers, doctors, lawyers, athletes, artists. Now they're coming from Michigan, Notre Dame, Harvard, Yale. Why? They have the option to go wherever they want. They can afford to go wherever they want. It leaves behind those who can't afford to move. It isolates them into a place where everybody around them is poor, where nobody around them reflects a, an economic position different from their own. And so you aspire to whoever you see. And if what you see doesn't happen to be very enriching or edifying, you take on that characteristic. So I think while segregation had an unintended consequence, it forced us into an entrepreneurial spirit. The end of segregation also had an unexpected consequence. Those who could left. They weren't fleeing from, they were striving for more. We all want to strive for more, but what happens when you can't afford it mm. and you get left behind? and you lose your role models. And there's nobody around to say, you know, that person over there, you could be just like that person over there. If there isn't anybody over there uh, that you can aspire to, then you aspire to whoever is over there, which might not be very, very good. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you know, life has its pros and cons, it's good and bad. Um, that I think is really an unexpected consequence of the end of segregation. Well, this has been a very rich time. I'm so thankful uh, for you taking this time out to talk to us again on the G3 project. And I look forward, as we talked before we started, of doing more uh, with you as in relationship to this book. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Sure. How can people get in contact with you uh, if they want to connect with you on Facebook, Twitter? I don't know if you're on Instagram. I'm and on Facebook. Okay. Um, Though I don't know, I, how, how do you how do you make a friend on Facebook? I just show up, you know. Um, <laughs> gosh, yeah, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, but the best way to reach me is through the school. So I'll give you my school email address, okay. which is, which is M MacMickle M M C M I C K L E at C R C D S Colgate Rochester Crozer Divinity School dot edu and uh, we can start with that and we can go from there but yeah if you can find me on facebook i'm there um or on twitter yeah 
Awesome. Well, I look yeah. forward to working with you in the future. And uh, I'm sure everybody else that's watching enjoyed this as much as me. Uh, so uh, I really, really appreciate it. Happy to do it, Lisa. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jude 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on, in, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.